Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Third on FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren. Co-host today is Mr. John COVID Copenhager. How are you doing, John? Hey, Al. I'm doing just fine and recovering nicely. So, you know, yay science. yeah it it wasn't it wasn't that hard on you was it this no no it really wasn't um actually the biggest pain was staying home so uh really i i can't complain um i know a lot of folks out there have had a lot worse and um so i'm I'm pretty good well yeah you know but you you've been you were taking bleach all the week weren't you or (laughs) oh yeah it's great it's great for the uh (laughs) You know, the digestive tract. <laughs> I do not recommend bleach. <laughs> uh, okay. Now we've got um, another guest that you brought to the show, which is great. Uh, you always bring interesting people. Um, we've got uh, the author of Doubting Thomas, and that's uh, Matthew Clark Davison. Thank you for being here, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. How do you classify yourself as a writer? Let's start there. Like what, what kind of writer are you? I, I think of myself primarily as a fiction writer because I, I'm interested in uh, the truth that comes out of being able to make stuff up. Um, and then from there, probably more of a, a literary fiction writer. But I also think that that's such a broad category compared to other people that use those terms. Maybe because I work in an MFA program, um, our particular program is very open and expansive. And of course, mystery, thrillers, horror, all sorts of uh, um, 
you know, pre previously stamped on literary genres in our program and in my mind can all be literary if they dig into the stuff that's, you know, the hard to answer questions about what it means to be human. Well, is that kind of your description of what a literary writer is? I feel like literary fiction um, does try to grapple with bigger and unanswerable questions versus, say, a more commercial fiction, which might just want to reinforce things that human beings like to think and feel. Like, we all want to think and feel that the bad guy is going to get punished and the and the good guy is going to get rewarded. But, um, and I think that there's, you know, if you were to look at my queue on any of the TV subscriptions that I have, you'd see that those kinds of stories are entertaining and, and stuff that my brain needs. But when it, when I sit down to write, I'm really attempting to dig into stuff that I don't know. And I think that that's, that's the broadest way like it, um, that I try to define literary versus commercial fiction. I think that there could be a better way to, um, classify it but given what's thrown around i would have to say that my book probably gets the stuff that i write probably gets classified as literary fiction most often so you would consider that you do creative research you know like it's it's something that is from outside of your own personal experiences well thomas the main character in doubting thomas it passes as straight for example and uh, um, once, I think it was in 2001, I was in the corner of a dark bar in a suburb outside of Milan, Italy, and somebody for about 10 seconds mistook me as a straight person, and then I moved one centimeter, and the the illusion was over. So yeah, <laughs> like I, do, I do I do very much fictionalize, like my characters are not uh, me, right? but... Um, I, I do also write nonfiction and, uh, um, but in both cases, I'm trying to get to something that I don't know already versus tell you something that I think. Right. So the, cause the common nonfiction would be you're identifying a truth or a fact, or you're trying to with the best resources you could, um, so that that leads that's an interesting there's there's really kind of a fine line between the two right and also then what gets to the the capital t truth or closer to it or what is the more compelling examination of the possibilities what can fall underneath like a broader spectrum of of truth and um for me changing details Oftentimes, because life, you know, just it, it's so full of uh, random um, people and events that don't necessarily in any way, shape or form add to a lot and overall logic. There's so much there's so much chaos and there's so much that, that's random um, that to be tr truly. Um, married to the idea that I'm going to tell this how it went down limits the possibility of how events and people can be compressed and, and such in order to to get at some bigger truth, I guess I would say. Yeah. Plus, you have to rely on your own memory, which changes constantly, right? What memory? Yeah. I have a cheese block. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. So when you set out to write a book like Doubting Thomas, do you have a, um, let's say a subtext or do you have sort of a, a central question and answer you want to display in that book? I think that every time my process with this novel was that I, um, I wrote several different scenes without really knowing where they were going or what they were going to add up to. And, uh, um, and I think that eventually, I mean, there was a couple of things that I noticed right away. And one was this question of what I'm, I'm interested in the question of like, what our responsibility is to one another. Are we our siblings keepers? And, uh, um, if we have hurt or have been hurt in our lifetimes, and then we get to a place of relative safety, can we y- share that safety or do we as human beings tend to just hoard the safety and try to collect more of it? Because I was a person that had to work pretty hard to keep the blood inside of his body for a particular period of my um, childhood and adolescence. And then I came to San Francisco during the midst of the worst of the, um, the AIDS years. And I felt so under threat for so long that the minute I got kind of a corner of safety, I, you know, I was screaming on the streets. I was in act up. I was, um, you know, marching for some of my mentors taught me that, you know, if they're going to come and get me in the morning, they're going to get you at night. So there was no differentiating between the various human rights things that we were all marching for. Um, and I was exhausted by the time I was 25. And certainly by the time I was 30 something. And then I found I was safe and relatively safety and relatively safe and relatively healthy. And, um, you know, Obama was in office and gay marriage was being legalized in state after state. And I just started to wonder like, what happens? Like, what is our responsibility to one another when, uh, um, when you're in a place of safety in a, in a kind of a greater community that isn't. And, and so what's the answer? (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's, I think it's challenging. I think it's a day at a time. And I think that it's challenging. I think I really, really do. I think that there are, um, you know, of course, if given the opportunity to be useful or helpful or to provide, to give back what so many people, you know, gave me, um, you know, I want to think of myself as a person who would absolutely do that. But it's also hard to get back out there on the front lines after having spent time on the front line. I don't know. What do you think? What do you, what do you both think? I don't know. Can we succeed at um, being our siblings keepers beyond the most basic where human beings too selfish for all that? Well, personally, I think that, um, for the most part, human beings are too selfish, but there will be progress made and there will be some keeping of other siblings, you know, or other, other people that we are surrounded with in the world. And that, 
that's what keeps us moving forward. Yeah, I, th I think, um, you know, yes. I mean, I agree with Al. I, I, I'm, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist, but I do think that people do, um, you know, do strive forward, do take care of one, one of uh, another and, and can be selfless. Um, I think there, I think maybe getting more to your point too, like there's a point when um, you do have to take care of yourself though. Um, and that you, I feel like there's got to be a balance there. Uh, and I also think you have to understand the impact you're having, which I think can be the hardest part. Like what is ultimately, what is going to have the greatest impact? Um, and I don't think that's always clear in the moment, especially when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the greatest impact are the things that don't get the attention. You know, unfortunately, the the, the real um, nice human things to do that we do for each other in in subtle ways and in and in ways that uh, make a real difference aren't really what the focus of the majority of the people are. Most of the people gain attention from doing the wrong thing. And um, in some cases, it's, it brings notoriety, and therefore, it's a it's kind of a goal for a lot of humans, a lot of people. So I think that, I think it's kind of mixed up. But it, in the long run, those loud people that do the bad things go away, and we forget. But what stays with us is is, is the kind things that happen to us. I like to think that that's true. And, but I am also, as an artist, I guess, very fascinated by the fact that, um, like, you know, in my book, the, the main character, Thomas, is best friends with his, he's a, he's a fourth grade, he's a fourth grade school teacher. And he's best friends with the principal at his school, at this fancy private school in Portland, Oregon. And they have an incredible friendship. And, more than anything, he gets accused of doing something that he doesn't do that leads to the, his job ending. And uh, more than anything, his best friend, who's the principal, wants to protect him. But she's, she's in a system where protecting him would, would, or attempting to protect him might cause more overall damage than good. And so I'm interested in the very real dilemmas because you know people are people have who have read my book are are mad at mercy this the character who's the principal sure. that yeah. <laughs> um that that does that and you know what i feel like you know what about the hundreds of thousands of kindnesses that she's shown so many people and thomas prior to being in this near impossible situation that no matter what she no matter what choice she makes it's it, something's going to be sacrificed and uh, um, almost to the point where I, I wanted to try to portray it in a way that if she would have really, really, really stuck up for him, that she would have lost her job or a significant amount of funding for the, the scholarship kids, which is the project that she feels most passionately about in her job. So um, because, you know, to me, a person... Um, I don't know. I would like to think that 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 we are capable of also seeing those complexities, but it's hard when emo personal emotions get involved. Well, I, I know that. I mean, it's a huge moral dilemma uh, that Mercy 
has because um, I, I think in your book she is sort of also a represent you know representative of the school and the liaison to the community. Um, I mean, a lot of it could come unraveled. So you know, all the same, <laughs> you know, you, as a reader, you're you're not you're very angry. Um, at her for the choices she makes that, you know, I'm wondering like to what degree, you know, were you thinking about moral dilemmas in this book? It sounds like you were, um, do you feel like it's, it's something you've decided on or something you're still kind of exploring as a writer? As the book evolved, because I, I, I started our conversation today by talking about this idea of are we our siblings keepers? And so I'm obsessed with the idea of siblings in general. Like Thomas is one of three boys, one a queer one, just like me. I'm a middle child. My husband's married. I mean, my husband has two brothers. Um, the, I was reading Justin Torres's novel, We the Animals, where there's three right. brothers and one of them is queer. And I, I just wanted that novel to keep going to see how their relationships evolved into their adulthoods. And I think that on, on some level, I may have started doubting Thomas because I all through, I left home at 15. My older brother was 17, but had been kind of out of the house a lot. Prior to that, my younger brother was 10. And I went 3000 miles away from where they lived in Massachusetts to where I ended up in California. And I didn't do a good job of keeping in touch with them for a huge variety of complex reasons. And so the who like the question of am I a brother and if so how has kind of haunted me for a long time but I didn't quite have the courage probably because I was going to have to face certain realities in my own life about my own story and also how I neglected those relationships based on things that I assumed that I thought and believed without investigating that so I think I just avoided the topic even though I was fascinated by it for so long and and when I first started writing Doubting Thomas, I knew that the question of parenthood was going to come up and that the two straight brothers were dads and that I, I knew on some level that things were going to go down to the question about whether or not Thomas was going to be a, a parental figure was going to come up. I was writing towards something like that. And then this real life situation happened where a gay teacher in a classroom that I visited along with some other people had touched merely the shoulders of a male child and somebody who was visiting that same classroom thought that the teacher had touched the kid inappropriately and this is based on literally like a kid got out of line I thought at first I was of course terrified for the kid because you know you find out a kid wasn't touched inappropriately and usually kids don't lie about stuff like that and so I, I went from that and then, and then the guy, the administrator who had, who was asking the questions after the witness had said that it was inappropriate, asked really incredible questions. And it turned out, I thought maybe I had missed something because I was in the, I was in the same, um, visiting the same classroom. And, um, and then it turned out that the guy just thought that he said, well, the guy was really flamboyant, meaning very obviously gay. And he was touching the kid's shoulders. And I was just, then I became incredibly worried for the teacher. And for that, I, my own brother, it's sort of a complex story, but it's like the, 
to make it as simple as possible, I had diagnosed the younger brother in the book with a fatal form of cancer prior to my real life younger brother getting diagnosed with a fatal form of cancer. And so when my younger brother in real life was diagnosed with this cancer that he ended up surviving um, because he was actually technically misdiagnosed in the beginning, um, I couldn't write about that anymore. It was too close to home. What started as fiction turned into real life and then I couldn't keep with the fiction. And so I focused on this other part, which is the, the accusation in the book based on this other real life thing. And somehow those two things merged in my head and I became equally sort of obsessed with the idea of like literal brotherhood and also this idea of can we be each other's, you know, can we be our brother's keepers? Well, that's did I just answer a question or did I just talk for like nine minutes? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that was interesting. I, I, I just wonder how you got from one place to the other, uh, because when you get to, um, I understand the cancer and, and, and your own family member, but I'm thinking the accusation into brother's keeper. Uh, I don't know. I was just writing, writing, writing. And I think I was like seeped pretty deeply into Thomas's head. Um, and so I, and I, and he was a teacher um, but I think that like a lot of the scenes with the brothers had taken place in my notebook without much like ambition or direction. They were just kind of sketches that I was scenes that I was writing maybe. Um, and once that, once I wrote, well, the first line of the book for a really long time was that he didn't do it. And I know that for mystery writers or whatever, that might be a horrible. And for a long time, it was also the entire first chapter. But I wanted the reader to be very, very clear that the questions that the novel was raising what, what weren't like whether or not he had inappropriately touched the child, but the dilemmas that that ensue for being perceived as someone that could have. Yeah, it feels much more like a novel about impact, you know, than it does a novel about, a, you know, you know, Diddy or Ditney, you know, it's not that novel, it, it struck me as very much about kind of the trauma of being falsely accused and ripple effects that it has on, on, um, well, and can I jump in and say, not, I I see it more as, as the, um, idea of being accused merely for the fact of someone's impression of what a gay man is. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I was interested in that more from a very liberal, um, kind of a neoliberal standpoint. And I think that part of what fueled that was just having lived through Reagan and the Bush years as an out queer person and, and, um, the impact that AIDS had on, um, my life and the, and the, the way that the government did or did not respond to that, what I call my first um, pandemic, <laughs> um, it, it, it sort of, it, it's, it, yeah, how, how it is, not that you're perceived by, how it is that you're perceived by the enemy, but how it is that you might be thinking that you're not being perceived that way by people that you consider to be your own community. 
Mm. How do you get in the heads of people like that do that? I mean, in the fact that you have to be, I would imagine researching people that are involved in that sort of situation in order to get, to get the characters to sound real. Well, you know, there's no shortage of, of, uh, in my part of town, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's no shortage of, um, of people who see themselves as being very liberal. Um, and I wasn't trying to shine the light on any kind of hypocritical, no, I don't have any interesting commentary on neoliberalism. I was more interested in how we all, including me, at center, perhaps, myself, um, want to believe that things are aligned in a way that suit me. And how when push comes to shove, those, thi those things can very, very those things can change very, very quickly. And so um, I was less trying to get in the head of like a neoliberal. There were some fun little lines that I wrote, especially like in Portland, there's a, there's a um, mom at Thomas's school that has like number one mom as her personalized license plate. And she barely interacts with her own daughter <laughs> and, um, you know, texts Thomas as if, you know, she's learned some, what she perceives as like, kind of gay vernacular from TV or Will and Grace or whatever, and texts phrases to Thomas in ways that are, that are intimate in a way that she hasn't earned. And she is, she and others assume that he's much more comfortable with those things than he, he might be without really getting to know them. Like nobody asks him like, you know, are you cool with this? Um, and also, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Portland and one time I was at New Seasons, which is a grocery store, and um, I was looking for pine nuts because I was going to make pesto or something. And um, I was struggling to find them in the, in, in the nuts section. And this employee of the store, I said, I, I'm not sure where the, first of all, I mispronounced their name, um, even though it was a very, it was just like, it was like S-I-N-D-Y on the name tag. And I said, Cindy, could you please tell me where the pine nuts are at? And they're like, um, it's Cindy. <laughs> and there was no, there was no like accent mark or indicator or whatever. And sure, I don't mind being corrected, but it was as if I should have known that in advance. And then they... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we're very pointed in teaching me about my own ignorance because pine seeds, pine nuts are actually seeds. So they would be in the seed section, not in the nut section. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I had fun, you know, um, with these very kind of Portlandia moments here and there, but mostly I was incredibly dedicated to seeing myself in the characters that had dilemmas about whether or not Thomas should continue in their the classroom with their with their kids um if that makes any sense like i didn't i didn't really have to go out there and research um neoliberal hypocrites i i had to look at myself and to see how i contradict myself how my values may not always um, align with my actions what, what was the significance of portland like why there um, I was there with my husband. My husband's like one of the characters in the book, Manny. He's mixed race. He identifies black. His dad was born in Sierra Leone and his mom was German. And we were walking through my friend's neighborhood um, during the Obama years. And Ansu said, my husband said, um, you know, wow, I've never seen so many Black Lives Matter signs and so few black people. And um, also, I was going there a lot for practical reasons. My friend was having some family issues where she needed, um, and because I'm a teacher and I have like winter breaks and summer breaks and stuff, I was able to 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 help out a little bit. And so I was there a lot, and I just you know could write it off. <laughs> and I also saw I saw like the 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 school in the book is is um, not a commentary on any real life place. But the physical layout of it is based on some a, a place in real life, and I saw that school, and I was I, I actually kind of couldn't believe because I visited schools through a job that I had for many years at a nonprofit in San Francisco, and then I visited this school in Portland, and I just couldn't believe the difference between what some children, the environment some children get to learn in versus others. And that stark contrast just made me feel like I would be an idiot not to use that as the setting. At the end of the book, what is it you want or hope that the reader takes away? I hope that the reader um, takes away maybe perhaps like, maybe they don't take away anything. Um, Al, but maybe what they do instead is <clears throat> ask themselves 
some questions about how they're showing up in their communities and how they're showing up in their families. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I, I just, a good recipe. I, I kind of thought I, there's a lot of food in my book and I kind of thought if you hate the book, <laughs> there should be some good recipes. Um, how to make a pasta with cherry tomatoes. I, I, I just, I don't know if I have a particular thing. Um, but there is something that I, that I discovered in the writing of the book about authenticity. I, because I'm so unlike Thomas, I sort of thought at one point, like, is this just a vanity project? Am I just like punishing this guy because he passes his straight and avoided the AIDS years that I had to live through in San Francisco? And he, he took off to Portland during the worst of the, like the, the loss in San Francisco in the community. And he, he sort of allowed the fact that like he didn't, he had to tell people that he was gay to shelter him from, um, you know, he, he sort of gleaned all of the rights that the out gay folks were fighting for without doing much of the work. And I, at one point I was just like, you know, cause Thomas has a really, really, really bad year. And I just thought, am I punishing a character for being all of the things that I'm not? <laughs> and I realized, no, you know what? I'm asking myself the question, um, you, you know, where am I hiding and where am I being authentic? I think. So, you know, one thing that, that I, you know, it's sort of interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking of, uh, about the story a bit and about, you know, um, I mean, from your standpoint, of course, you're exploring this character and thinking about it um, as, as we fiction writers often do. We're trying to sort of pull parts of ourselves out and, and put them into characters to essentially explore something about ourselves. But, you know, as a reader, I kept on thinking about it as a story of a community. And there's this moment, and I'm going to misquote it, but um, Thomas's lawyer sort of is making a comment about, you know, the fact that this community, I guess, sort of neoliberal community, they kind of want a villain, and he's, he's it, you know? They actually want him to be guilty, which is a very, struck me as a very weird thing to want. We, we actually want to believe that there was a, a pedophile in our midst opposed to, oh, we were wrong, you know, our children are safe and, you know, things all things are all right, which is what you would think they would want, right? Um, and I thought that was such an interesting insight and, and maybe I connected with it at least. And I wondered if you thought about sort of why that might be the case, what that's saying about communities, is that just a, do you think that's just a neoliberal thing or is that kind of like a human thing? Um, I don't know, what do you think? I love that question because it's one of the parts of the novel that I think is most, uh, was most surprising for me to discover. Like the idea of Thomas as a pariah and the, the country day community needing or wanting one was something that, that surprised me. I do feel like in an, it's an homage in a way to, and I didn't know this on purpose when I was writing it, but I think that in hearing you describe it, I thought of Sula, the novel by Toni Morrison, and in um, in and how when she returns to the bottom at, in the second half of the novel after she leaves, um, she shares these insights that she has i mean they kind of come out in their conversations with nell 
about how, um, or, or maybe it's the narrator. I need to reread it again, but uh, maybe it's the maybe it's the omniscient narrator. But this idea that that a community needs a pariah in order to believe in its own wellness, in order to not reflect on the probable chance that there is no pariah and there is no hero and there's no one that's pure. There, we're all probably in varying degrees a combination of all of those things. You know the story um, by Ursula Le Guin called The Ones Who Walk Away from Amalas. I think that's how you say it. Um, very short, but it's all about a community um, that has, it's a perfect ideal utopia, except that there's a child that they keep in the basement in one of the houses that gets beaten and, and tortured. The rest of the community is perfect, but only because they have this child. So it's sort of a moral dilemma. Is that okay or not okay? Clearly it does not sound okay, but you know, it's interesting. It does seem to be something that is something like a core human thing, which I think went for me went past just about a commentary on a particular community of people or that, outlooks and seem to be more about like human nature, you know, which is chilling, <laughs> uh, maybe true. Well, but if, if it's, if it's, if it is, and I do, I'm glad, so glad that you read the book as a, as a book about community, because my own family is multiracial, like the cast of characters in the book. And we are forced to deal with, we love each other and we want each other to be well, but we all have very different experiences. And, um, and so we have to confront some really oh my. stuff sometimes about, uh, I think that some people have the luxury to ignore. And, you know, the, there's, we do live in a culture that is riddled, unfortunately, with racism and misogyny and homophobia and other things. And, you know, if those things, if one or more of those things don't affect you, and you're busy dealing with all of the other stuff that does and all your trials and tribulations, then it's difficult to kind of validate and do the work um, so that you can see that these things are actually affecting the people that you love. You may not be able to do anything about it, but you also don't need to necessarily deny it. I don't know. I, and I guess I feel like, um, I, I feel like Chad in the book, the, the kid that gets so ruthlessly fag bashed in um in that Kant's Thomas in his memory was the was one of the pariahs at that school and and Thomas benefited from him being the pariah because his gayness was so overt that compared to Thomas's Thomas's didn't Thomas didn't have to suffer so I mean he had to you know, conceal parts of himself, but I don't really, that doesn't make me, do you know what I mean? That's harder to empathize with as a, a mode of suffering. It certainly is than somebody who's actually, who's, whose life is being um, endangered by the treatment that they're getting because of how they're perceived. Do you know what I mean? There's, there are varying degrees of suffering. I think that, I mean, that idea of, um, which I think does, uh, work throughout the book a great deal of, you know, what it means to be, you know, out essentially from the beginning and then to sort of pass for a while and the safety in that, going back to your theme of safety, 
um, you know, it is something that certainly connected with me. Um, I, I was definitely kind of a Thomas and I definitely knew a Chad. <laughs> and so it's, it's, you know, and it does have an impact, but it, it also, um, the shame of that is complex too, you know? So I thought you captured that really well too. It's like the, there's a shame in not being out as well, um, which causes a kind of, you know, uh, a resonance or, or I don't know what to call it trauma, but a complexity, emotional complexity to it. Um, you know, I'm thinking about how, so I, I want to talk a little bit about like your like process a little bit. Um, Cause I know you're a teacher too, and how you, you know, you've talked a lot about sort of, I guess in general terms, maybe how the novel came to be, but it, was it like an idea that you had, um, you know, kind of its core initially, or did it, was it really more of a collage or a slow, a slow development of ideas? It was way more the latter. Yeah. Um, I think that just because I live in the Bay Area and I, you know, as a as lecturer faculty at a university, I had to work a lot of jobs. And so for me, um, I also identify as much as a teacher as I do a writer. I know that there's some writers that don't and some writers who teach that don't, they, they would like to be a full-time writer, but I love teaching. Um, and I love, I love the fact that I, a high school dropout with, you know, whose parents didn't get a chance to go to college, ended up going to a university and then teaching when I think it's funny and wonderful. And I think that there are, you know, a, a few students where I teach who relate to that. And so therefore I can kind of, um, be useful in certain ways. But, um, I think that because of those realities, I, I kind of get to the notebook and in this case, it really was a notebook with a pen. Um, when something just stirs me emotionally. And I think that, you know, the way in which my brother is both having children and then followed by my younger brother's cancer, which I said he, like, which I already said he had survived, thrust me back into the center of my own family in a way that might be similar to how um, Thomas's accusation thrusts him back into the middle of his family in a, in a much more intimate way. And I had to confront all sorts of things about that myself. And I used fiction, I guess, in order to unravel some of the complexities of that. And so I was just writing scene after scene after scene. Plus I was processing my own fear around the pendulum swinging the other way. Um, I'm, by the way, I want you both to know I'm fun and doubting Thomas is funny, but I feel like I'm coming across as so serious in this interview because some of the subject matters in my book are pretty serious, I guess. But like, you know, there's also yes, jokes, there right, is. John? Yes, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah. seriousness can't survive um, without some humor <laughs> weaved in, I think. Yeah. And my brothers are uh, wonderful. Their, their spouses are incredible. I love being an uncle. Um, and you know, also I, I, I've been married and I got married for very practical reasons at first. But, um, so I think that, that to answer your question, it was just a hodgepodge. It was like always centering around this one, um, particular character. And then when the accusation came in, um, I think that I had an opportunity to also, take a, a closer look at some of the ways in which um, I felt like some neo, some liberal um, communities that I belong to engaged in um, 
simplistic thinking. And again, I'm never like, I just don't think that I'm the person that's here on earth to call anybody else out. But I am curious about my own behavior. Um, so um, it, it, that was the process of this book was very, very, very much a hodgepodge. And at a certain point, I just started putting together all of the scenes and then eliminating the ones that um, really were just repeating the same emotional place. And then also I started putting them into chronological order and seeing that there was a, a, a bit of a actual plot um, there, a, a kind of question that could get me to the beginning to end. And so I started revising with those things in mind. By the end of the book, and when you finished that, the whole process of this book and got it published, um, when you look back at this process, what do you think you learned about yourself? Well, as a, as a writer, I think I want one of the things that I would that I that I think is very important for me to say is that you know I this is not the first novel I've ever written, and I do think that that um, the things that I have written in the past haven't necessarily um, coincided with the, the things that the big five publishers are um, you know publishing in droves, and so I think that the biggest accomplishment of my life with this book, I mean, of my life is that I didn't need a book in order to feel validated as a human being or as an artist or as a um, teacher of creative writing. Um, because that was hard. There's a lot of pressure in a lot of different ways. And um, it, as far as like what I learned from the actual process of writing this, this book is other than like, you know, wow, I really can <laughs> stick with something. <laughs> And I can really try. I I really am determined to. You know, I wrote this book because I I, I needed to, but I think that um, that it, it, a deep and compelling love for my brothers that is very complicated by the aspects of of um, our culture that continue on, and you know, also trying attempting to try to be the person that I am in relationship to other people versus adjusting my behavior to account for how society might make us feel that we can't be intimate with one another. Um, I think, you know, queer people are constantly being sort of asked to tone themselves down in certain ways. And, um, I know that I have done that, you know, I just, there, there, I have committed sins, sins against my own ethics and morals, just in what I've worn to my brother's weddings. I just, I, I just like, you know, it, it is against my morals to wear a regular, like baggy pair of khakis like that, that does not gel with my worldview. And yet I've done it in order to be acceptable to, to, to feel like I might not get stuff like that. I just feel like there's very low payoff for pretending to be something that you're not. And then also on the flip side of that same coin, I just at a certain age felt like I no longer need to, you know, show up wearing the things that my, that I might when going out on a Saturday night to the wedding in order to prove a point that authenticity is something, you know, and true intimacy and relationships is something other than those, 
those thing those things that we do that we think are going to you know please or challenge each other does that even make sense yeah so you're showing up to your brother's wedding in a g-string g-string but with beaded Come on, classy. I don't. I'm not going to just wear the off the rack. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, it's got to have a a label to it. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is. I think it goes. I mean, um, you know, goes both ways too. I feel like as you know, we're either as um, gay men asked to, uh, you know, come off or hide that by appearing straight in our choice of, you know, how we present ourselves or we have to like, or there's something wrong with us because we're not like wearing the sequin G string or the, you know, feather boa, whatever. Like there's like, there's no in between either this or that you're not sort of something more complex or various, which I think is kind of dehumanizing. Um, And it feels like that's kind of what I'm hearing a little bit you know, that we should be able to fit all those things together, not have them be absolute, you know, um, opposites or something. I'm not sure if I'm expressing that very well. but You are. And I think that, that, that beyond myself as an individual, I also feel like I need to give that permission to everyone. It's just like, what are my expectations of other people? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I see people with RuPaul's Drag Race being so popular and stuff. I see people that are mad because popular culture is appropriating things that started in the gay community. And I get that when like people aren't giving credit to the people that, you know, work so hard and also had to pay prices, but when, with things that are a little bit le- like when, when it's just something like, like if I associate say um, wearing a bandana around my forehead as gay and I see a straight person wearing a bandana, somebody that I perceive as straight wearing a bandana around their head, like, do I get to tell that person that they shouldn't be, be able to do that? I, I'm not trying to weigh in on whether or not somebody else should engage in that argument. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be like a little bit more live and let live for myself and for everyone. Oh, of course. Let's talk about how people can get a hold of you. How do you like to interact with listeners and, and, and readers and fans of yours and, and stuff? Do you social media, website, where do people go? Yeah, my last name has one D in it. It's the very first letter. And so it's Davison. Um, and all of my social media can be found by Googling or whatever, Matthew Clark Davison. I do have a website with a contact information. And, uh, um, you know, Doubting Thomas is sold everywhere books are sold. So um, I probably post the most on Instagram because it's easy you could just put a picture up there hmm. how how was the writing process over this um last few years you must have been writing through a lot of the mess going on in the in the world um did that make it even more intense something about this pandemic where i got to be quiet and not in the highest risk group enabled me to access parts of myself that were really, really long buried. And also I found out that I'm a bit more of an introvert than I thought. And uh, so I got, I was very, very, very productive. I have a textbook coming out, co-written with my friend, Alice LaPlante with Norton, um, based on just stuff that I probably would have never been able to do had I been 
living my regular life, I think things had to really come to a halt for me to prioritize my own writing and my own projects in that particular way. And then I have another nonfiction project happening. And I, I have actually, um, I don't think that the world has gotten any worse. I just feel like things may have been, I don't know. I, I don't, I think that maybe things have come more to the surface. So I don't know if um, all of the struggles that we've had in the variety of ways that we've had um, have done anything compelling to my, I'll let you be the judge of that someday, but I, I will say that I have managed to write. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I know what you're saying. Um, we see things more, perhaps more clearly now um, in the last few years about the struggles and stuff, but, um, but having that sort of tension and stress and things like that, that you're, sort of outside of your door, so to speak. Um, do you think you get more, um, does it seep into your writing, do you think? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Hmm. Really interesting. Whole, the whole world is interesting, you know. But anyway, well, so for the listeners, um, we need you to go out and buy a book. It's called Doubting Thomas, a novel. And it's written by um, our guest, Matthew Clark Davison and you know help him out he needs he needs a latte <laughs> uh, Matthew thank you for coming on the show it was such a pleasure thank you for your wonderful questions and for all that you do tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.